And our first Bible reading continues the theme of the Lord's Prayer. Um, and it's uh, Matthew chapter 6 and beginning at verse 5. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, but they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their face so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Our second reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and beginning of verse 4. And it's a passage that uh, many of us uh, remember uh, every Sunday from this pulpit. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our Lord, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand, fix them as an emblem on your forehead, and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Amen. When Liz and I were undergraduates at Sheffield University back in the early 90s, the Biblical Studies department where we were studying was situated on floor 10 of a building known as the Arts Tower. This grade 2 listed 1960s skyscraper dominates the skyline of Sheffield, sitting on top of the tallest of Sheffield's seven hills. It is loved and loathed in equal measure, in a similar way to that in which the Barbican divides opinion in London. But the Arts Tower is steel and glass rather than the brutalist concrete of our own uh, 60s monstrosity. I mean, Barbican. Anyway, there were a, a couple of normal lifts that ran up the middle of the building, but the main way of getting around was to use a thing called the Paternoster lift. 
Now, has anybody ever been in a Paternoster lift? Yeah, several of you know what I'm talking about. Um, it's, for those of you who don't, it's like a giant bicycle chain of carriages that runs up and down and up and down in a continuous loop from the top to the bottom and the bottom to the top of the building in constant, if rather slow, motion. And, and the carriages, which are just about big enough to house two people, have no doors. And the lifts have no doors. You simply wait for a vacant car to come along and step onto it, just much as you'd step onto an escalator or something, getting on and off the tube. It just keeps moving. And then when you get to the floor that you, you're ready to get off at, you just step off again. And the little floors have little hinges, so if you've got your foot stuck out, you don't end up chopping the end of your foot off or something. Um, but even so, it takes a bit of getting used to it. It's, it's both brilliant and terrifying. And it's still going strong all these years later, I'm told. Of course, as you step into the void from the 10th floor or higher, anticipating the imminent arrival of something to stand on, you might be tempted to mutter a little prayer to yourself. Hence, so the rumour goes, it is a paternoster lift, because for those of you whose Latin is a little rusty, paternoster is Latin for our Father, the opening words of the Lord's Prayer from Matthew's Gospel. Or it may be that the circular motion of the carriages is reminiscent of counting the beads on a rosary, one of which you would say paternoster as you hold it. I think the two things are not unrelated to each other. I think I prefer the nervous prayer explanation, but uh, other explanations are also available. I wonder if, though, whichever explanation we go for of why it is acquired that name, the Paternoster lift can tell us something significant about the way people often use the Lord's Prayer. I suspect that for many, maybe even for many of us, it has become a little rote prayer, learned in childhood and recited when needed, either because it's that point in the service again, or because if you're Roman Catholic, it's that point in the rosary again, or because of some other pressing need has triggered the need for a little prayer, and that's the only one we can remember under, under duress. Well, for many people, particularly those who have had a Roman Catholic upbringing, simply saying the words paternoster is enough. The opening words imply the rest of the prayer. And I think this tells us something profound about the nature of the Lord's Prayer, which is that the way it begins is of utmost importance. If the Lord's Prayer is the definitive Christian prayer, I'm going to suggest that the opening words are the most definitive phrase within it. They define what follows. And the practice of using the opening couple of words to signify that which follows is far from unique to just the Lord's Prayer. The Jews did it with the prayer known as the Shema, which we had read to us earlier from the book of Deuteronomy. And in many ways, the Shema is a kind of forerunner to the Lord's Prayer. And it similarly gets its name from its opening words. Shema in Hebrew means hear, and the prayer begins. Hear, O Israel. How things begin is important. How the service begins here is important. We begin now with a collective call to worship. The opening words we speak matter. 
I understand that in a former minister's time, you would begin with the words of the Shema. And Howard, you hopefully alluded to that. It, it, how we begin our worship matters. And I just wonder what, what you think we're doing when we come to worship. When we stand and we call one another to worship, what words do we use? How much attention do we pay to our opening words? Hear, O Israel, our Father which art in heaven, let us worship, let us pray. Well, in Matthew's Gospel, the Lord's Prayer begins, Our Father. Interestingly, in Luke's Gospel, it just begins, Father. And I want to focus for a minute or two on this word, Father. You see, the language we use to talk about God, the words we use to describe God or to address God, reveal a lot to us about who we think God is. The Lord's Prayer, for example, could have begun... Our God, a fairly neutral statement, our God, who is in heaven. It could have begun our Lord, who is in heaven. It could have begun our King, who is in heaven, which would probably suggest a, a sort of greater level of authoritarian divinity. Is God our Father or is God our, our Lord and our King? King actually would have made probably more sense than Father in some ways, given that part of what follows in the Lord's Prayer is a prayer for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. So there clearly is a kingly aspect to God in view in the prayer, but that's not how it starts. It starts, our Father. The Lord's Prayer begins by turning to God not as an authoritarian other, but as the heavenly Father of those offering the prayer. The Jews had a tradition of praying to God as Father. It's not found frequently in the Old Testament, but it is there, and it certainly would have formed part of the devotional tradition of Judaism within which Jesus grew up. The most common images for God that we find in the Hebrew Bible tend not, though, to be God as Father. They tend to be God as Creator or King or Judge. How would you feel if I began a prayer with, O oh God, our Judge? That would be a thoroughly biblical thing to do. But you might think, wow, what's, he, what's coming now? Father is there, but it's not that common. And Jesus putting it forefront of the prayer he wants people to pray, therefore, is significant. Well, it may be that the reason the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew scriptures, don't particularly talk about God as Father could be a kind of reaction against some of the other ancient religions, which believed in a notion of divine parenthood of humans. So this idea of gods coming down to the earth, having sex with humans, giving birth to superhero-type offspring, that was kind of out there. And it may be that the Jews were wanting to say, well, we, we don't believe that our God is that kind of God. Actually, there is an echo of that in the Old Testament. If you go to the Genesis story of the Nephilim, uh, which is where the angels come down to earth and have sex with humans, and that's where the, the great warriors of old came from. But that's another sermon for another day. When it comes to Israel's understanding of God as Father, there are two key aspects to it. 
Firstly, Israel considered itself as a nation to be a, a son adopted by God. And this is particularly so with regards to God's action in bringing them from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land. It's a kind of a national understanding. We collectively as a nation are God's son. So Moses goes to Pharaoh when Israel is still enslaved in Egypt and says, uh, Exodus says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I say to you, let my son go that he may worship me. So this is Israel personified as the son of God. The nation is the son of God. And this idea of Israel as God's child then crops up elsewhere through the Old Testament story. We get it in Hosea and in Isaiah and in the Psalms. And if you want the references, come and see me later. So we've got Israel as a nation, as, as God's son. But then there is a second way in which the father imagery is used of God, particularly in prayer, within the Jewish tradition. And this is the way God is spoken to as being the father of the king of Israel. So we get it in, for example, to Samuel, where God promises to be a father to the king, and the king will be his special son. So obviously the, the kind of the main king that's in view here is the king is King David, but then all the other kings that follow, the Davidic kings, are the sons of David, but are also the special son of God. And it's a combination of these two facets of the fatherhood of God. Firstly, God is the kind of covenantal father who rescues the nation from Israel and adopts them. And then secondly, God as the father of the king of Israel that directly come together and feed into the way Jesus would have understood his use of the phrase, our father, when he invites us to use that of God at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. God is the father of Israel collectively, but is also specifically the father of its key figurehead, the king of the line of David. So, if we turn to Matthew's gospel, we find quite a few references to Jesus as the son of David. There's a sense in which Jesus is being cast as a key figurehead in the new Christian community. So it's not merely David, who is the ancestor of Jesus, Jesus is the son of David, but just as all the kings that followed David had God as their special father and they were God's special son, so if Jesus is the son of David and if Jesus is the key figurehead of the new Christian community, Jesus is a son of God in that sense. And this idea of Jesus as the son of God becomes important for Matthew because it then defines the community of those around Jesus as being those who are also invited to see themselves as sons or children. I'm going to make it a bit gender inclusive in the way I begin to talk about it. And we have to recognize that there is a bit of a problem with gender exclusive language in some of these ancient texts. The people become the son or children of God in much the same way that Israel was the son or child of God. Just as God was the father of the king, and so have also all Israel, so God is the father of Jesus, and so also the father of his disciples too. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, where we find the Lord's Prayer, 
we also find Jesus telling his disciples several times that God is their father in heaven. We don't just get it in the Lord's Prayer. If you read the chapter or two before and after, you get repeated references. When you pray to your father in heaven, do this because you are the children of your father in heaven. So, in this sense, the disciples of Jesus are seen as those who are adopted as the children of God, just as Israel of old was adopted as the son of God. And this sense of adoption by God is then seen to carry with it a responsibility to live accordingly. This is not something we take on lightly. The children are expected to behave in ways that bring honour to their Heavenly Father. And one of the key ways they do this is by the doing of good deeds. It's not salvation by works, but certainly there is an expectation that if you are adopted as one of God's children, that really ought to start playing it out in your life, in the way you live and the way you behave. And one of the key tests is, do you do good works with your life? And in this, the disciples, who are those who are expected to do good works, are contrasted with the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, who are presented in Matthew's Gospel as having betrayed their status as children of God by focusing more on outward piety than on a kind of genuine transformation of their heart and lives. So, within this Jewish context, an invitation to say our Father at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer is an invitation to take a momentous step of faith, which transforms the way we live our lives. We're not merely naming God as Father in some generic sense. We are specifically identifying ourselves as his children when we say our Father. We are in effect naming ourselves as the new Israel, adopted by the God who brings us too from slavery to freedom, who releases us from our enslavements to those desires and temptations that diminish the image of the Father in us. And this must have implications for the way we will live. We must be those in whose lives good deeds are visible. Those who imitate the likeness of our Heavenly Father. It does frustrate me that one of the, one of the insults which is thrown sometimes at Christians is, oh, she's just another one of those Christian do-gooders. Blooming right. <laughs> What's wrong with doing good? The world would be a better place if more people did it. So if you want to insult us by calling us do-gooders, game on. I'm up for that. Let's do it. In fact, Jesus is rather more uncompromising than that. In the Sermon on the Mount, just before the Lord's Prayer, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We should not pray our Father lightly. If we pray it, we pray it because we mean it, because we're going to live out the reflection of the life of the Father in our lives. But there is another side to being adopted as a child of God. And that is that we are the beneficiaries 
of the fatherly care of God. Not in the sense that God will automatically give his children everything they ask for. I mean, what kind of good father does that? Uh, I, many of you will know, I, I have an adoptive father. He, he adopted me when I was one, when he married my mum. In many ways, he was a very good father. He did not give me everything I wanted. God is a good father in the sense that God is attentive to our needs. Knowing what we need before we even ask him. God knows what his adopted children need. God knows what you need before you even ask him. And I was pondering this this week, and it occurred to me that this is an immensely freeing insight for the person who wants to come before their Heavenly Father in prayer. I do find it difficult to pray. I just do. And one of the reasons I think I find it difficult to pray is that I don't know what to say. I have found that I've grown weary of the kind of prayer that seeks to articulate all of my needs and desires before God. When I was a teenager, I was encouraged to keep a prayer list. It was a little notebook that lived alongside my Bible by my bed. And I would write on it all the things I'd asked God for, and then I was expected to cross them off when they were answered. Not, not in such a way that they were illegible, because you had to be able to look back and see all these occasions when God had answered your prayer. And honestly, I think it was one of the worst things I ever did for my prayer life, because it reduced prayer to this functional activity, as if by naming things before God according to some spiritual formula, I could in any way affect their outcome. So I'll say this as bluntly as I know how. I don't think prayer changes God, or God's mind, or God's activity in the world. In fact, I'll go further. I have a suspicion that to utter a prayer, or a prayer list, according to some set incantation, such as, in the name of Jesus Christ, Amen, which I always had to say at the end of my prayers because I was a bit worried if I didn't say the formula at the end of my prayers, then my prayers might not be answered. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Please do it. <laughs> I'm worried that that might actually be sorcery. I am deeply concerned when humans think they can seek to control God by invoking prayer rituals or practices. That actually, technically, is sorcery. It's an attempt to make the gods do what we want the gods to do according to the rituals that we carry out. I want prayer to be so much more than this. So much more than presenting God with a shopping list of my needs. And I don't want the guilt that comes from suddenly realising that I've missed something or someone out from my prayer list. And surely God, if God exists and if God is my heavenly father, surely God just knows this stuff already. Well, Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 to 8, we heard it earlier. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. 
Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him, says Jesus. God knows our needs before we do. And so prayer can then become something very different than just telling God our needs in the hope that he might be listening and might meet them. Prayer to God our Father is prayer offered to the one who already knows us better than we know ourselves and who loves us more than we love ourselves. Such prayer is not about changing God or changing the outworking of God's love in the world. It is about bringing ourselves into alignment with the love of God who is reaching out to us and through us and with us to draw the world to himself. And as Jesus discovered in the Garden of Gethsemane, prayer does not stop the difficult stuff happening to those of us who are praying or to those whom we love. Contemplating the horrors of the cross that lay before him, Matthew tells us that Jesus threw himself on the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I want, but what you want, and that this prayer in the garden did not avert the cross. What it did was it allowed Jesus to embrace the cross. And I wonder if this is what it means for us to pray to God our Father. The future is still before us with all of its joys and sorrows and uncertainties. But in prayer to our loving Father, we are drawn into the all-embracing love of God who holds the future in his hand, whatever that future might be. And it is we who are changed by this prayerful encounter. It is we who are called to set aside our selfishness and our fear and all the pretensions that mask the image of God in our lives. God is our Father and he welcomes us into his presence as we draw near to him in prayer. And I know the point I'm about to make has been made many times before, but it's worth making it again. For some of us, the image of God as Father is deeply problematic. Human fathers, even at their best, will only ever be poor reflections of God the Father, and at their worst, they can be terrible perversions of what godly paternal love should look like. Some of us here today will have suffered violence and abuse from fathers who should have been different. Some of us will have suffered the absence of a father through our formative years. So I'm just going to say, if Father God doesn't work for you, that's fine. It's just an image. It is only language. All language of God is inadequate anyway. So feel free to substitute. If mother works better for you, I'd say go with that. Or if you want to get more abstract and talk about idealized parent or whatever language works for you, whatever language captures for you the experience of being loved unconditionally, by one who longs for your presence. If we're going to hallow the name of God, then we'd better use a name that's worth hallowing, I guess, is what I'm saying. But for now, if you'll allow me, I'll stay with the language of God as Father. It's there in the text, and it carries a helpful meaning for many, if not for all. So pray in this way, says Jesus, our Father in heaven. 
And here we hit straight up against another preconception of God that can be less than helpful. If God is our Father in heaven, then does this mean that we are praying to some kind of absentee God? Sitting up there, metaphorically speaking, on a cloud, attended by putti and cherubs? Certainly, if medieval artwork of God on high is to be believed, that is exactly what our God, which art in heaven, looks like. However, we have to recognize that what is at play here is a pre-scientific cosmology that might have worked 2,000 years ago, but doesn't really work so well for us today. In the ancient Jewish spiritual tradition, they pictured the heavens as a kind of reflection of an earthly royal court. So just as a king on earth had courtiers and attendants and sat on a raised throne, on a raised dais, indicating his power and authority, so they saw God sitting on a throne up in heaven, surrounded by the heavenly host of attendants and armies. And for them, heaven was very definitely up there somewhere, high above the clouds. And sometimes they thought the veil between the heavens and the earth could wear a bit thin, particularly if you went up a mountain. It's one of those reasons people in the Bible often seem to go up to mountaintops to pray or to meet with God. They were, they believed, quite literally closer to God there. Well, I'm pretty sure none of us think that going up a mountain takes you literally closer to God. Figuratively speaking, maybe. I absolutely do get the sense of transcendence that a magnificent view can offer. It's one of the reasons I like going on holiday to Austria. But not literally. I mean, I don't think I'm closer to God in an aeroplane than I am on top of a mountain, and closer to God on a mountain than I am in a church at sea level. And I think we need to intentionally set aside the view of our God, our Father in heaven, as a, as a distant God, enthroned above the clouds and removed from our lives' experiences of the world. And I wonder if a more helpful way of thinking of God as our heavenly Father is to embrace the language of God our Father who is in heaven as speaking to us of a God whose nature it is to embrace all of the created order. He is the God of the heavens and the earth. Everything there is. The planets, the stars, the ground beneath our feet. This is God who is God of everything. Our Father who is in heaven this is not some localized little deity that we can make a statue of and put on the mantelpiece and do a devotion to every morning. This is God of all things. That's why we had that second hymn. It talks about the fatherhood of God and links it to the work of God in all creation. The God of nature, the God of all peoples, the God of all animals and all plants. If you want to look for a basis for environmental theology, God, who is the God of all the heavens, is a good place to start. Our Father in heaven is a vision of God whose love and care extends to the vastness of all that is. And so to think of ourselves as children of this God is to name ourselves as those who are called to share with God in the task of universal love. A quote from Rowan Williams. He says, 
very near the heart of Christian prayer is getting over the idea that God is somewhere a very, very long way off so that we have to shout very loudly to be heard. On the contrary, God has decided to be an intimate friend and has decided to make us part of his family and we must always pray on that basis. So praying to Father God which art in heaven is not praying to the sky, hoping anxiously that some distant God will hear us and respond to us and do what we're asking. It's actually about identifying ourselves as God's children, called to share with him in tasks of good, which draw the whole of creation into the love of God. It's about who we are as God's children in the world. And I think something of this is captured in a paraphrase of the Lord's Prayer that was developed by the African Fellowship of the Union Church in Istanbul. Yes, there is indeed such a thing. It captures this sense of the heavenly God who desires to make himself available to all people everywhere who call upon his name. I found it in a, a great book on the Lord's Prayer that I've been reading this week by Nijay Gupta, uh, which I'm just going to put in as a little footnote to say it was very helpful in the formation of this sermon. I'm not going to tell you which bits I nicked and which bits I didn't, but uh, a few bits I did. But I'm going to close with this wonderful paraphrase of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, you are in Istanbul, in our flats and hotels, in Taksim and Beoglu. You are within us and in our homes. You are in Africa, Europe, Australia and the Americas, in Yugoslavia and Russia. You are with the hungry and dying children in Somalia, and also in Liberia, Bosnia, Ethiopia, Sri Lanka, Kuwait and Iraq forever and ever. Amen. So let us pray. God, our Father, God, our lover and beloved, God, closer to us than our breathing, God, who knows every word on our lips before we utter it and every need in our hearts before we notice it. God who sustains all that is in being. God who draws us constantly to a future of love and hope and joy. God whose heart breaks with every tear that falls. God whose love is unshakable. We come to you. And we come because you have come first to us to call us into being, to meet us, to redeem us, and to invite us into your family. We come, we come to bring our prayers knowing that our words are so much smaller than our needs and our needs are so much smaller than we understand. Knowing that our world aches and is full of joy and is more complicated than we can imagine. 
and knowing that our faith is so very small. And so we come knowing all of that to try and say what it is that we carry. We bring you our longings for our world. Hoping and praying that they echo your longings. We long for justice. As we hear stories of people mistreated, of people whose lives are limited, of those who find their very humanity insulted by the choices made by those around them, we long for justice. We long for hope as we see situations which seem hopeless and where nothing ever seems to change. As we see the faces of children walking for hours to get water and then finding dirty water and the illness that goes with it. As we hear the stories of people having to leave their homes because they cannot continue there any longer because of violence or lack of basic amenities. We long for hope. We long for flourishing as we look at our earth suffering from exploitation and misuse and overuse and poisoning. We long for courage as we look around and don't know what to do and don't know how to do it. We long for joy as we look into the faces of those who mourn, of those who are afraid, of those who are excluded. We long for life as we face death. And we want to be called do-gooders. And so we long for the imagination to know how to do good in ways that will matter and that will be your love and your activity. And we want to know how to pray. To know how to pray in ways that will change us, that will draw us into closer fellowship with you, that will send us out to be love and presence and hope and courage. We want to be the answers to others' prayers. Our Father, we know we are not what we should be. We know this earth is not what it could be. We know that the ways that life happens, the situations in which people live, the circumstances in which they struggle through, that all of these could be different. And we dare to trust that in your intention, they will be different. And that as your children, we can do something to be the difference. And we dare to hope that in our praying, that difference will take on hands and feet and voice and heart. 
so that the world in which we pray is different from a world in which we have not prayed. And so that through our praying, you will choose to make your love known in us, through us, to us, and by us for the good of many, for the redemption of the world, for the coming of the kingdom. And we dare to pray it because Jesus told us to. Amen.